much like judging a book by its cover. Many will interact with biracial folks based on their most pronounced phenotype. How might that impact one's identity development and socialization process? Consequently, how might that create an internalizing process for biracial folks when others do not see or read the entire person? Will that be like skipping chapters in a novel? But what would it be like for us to see and read each page, each chapter, and essentially see and appreciate the entire novel? How do we do the same and apply that idea in the context of therapy or consulting? Welcome to People of Color and Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Sun. Our guest today is Dr. Shirley Juan Lei, a licensed psychologist at Interconnections Healing Center. Dr. Lei's specialty focus is on racial and intergenerational trauma, global mental health, loneliness and disconnection, intersectional identity development, and coaching BIPOC executives. Prior to her clinical training, Dr. Lei served as a partner at BIPOC Executive Search, a recruitment firm dedicated to placing individuals from BIPOC backgrounds in executive positions. In her past roles within higher education, Dr. Lei specialized in matters related to diversity and inclusion. As a Chinese and Mexican-Canadian psychologist offering services in the United States, Dr. Lei will be discussing aspects of discovering and understanding bicultural identities which demands a proactive approach involving active engagement and experimentation with aspects of oneself that were previously disavowed. Dr. Lei, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for sharing space with me today. Well, can you walk us through your journey, any memorable events and circumstances that may have influenced how you even got into this work? Yes, thank you, Jack. So growing up, I've always been told that I was a very sensitive child, emotionally speaking. I've often been told to be the bigger person if somebody had hurt my feelings that I should swallow it and move on and not make it bigger than, than it really is. So from those experiences, I grew up to be somebody who's quite empathic to strong emotions like sadness. And I've also started to explore what drives my self-esteem right? What gives me a sense of satisfaction in who I am? And added to that is, how do I seek a sense of closeness in relationship? How do I prevent ruptures? How do I resist against people leaving? How do I keep good people close to me? Right? So through all those experiences, it has contributed to my understanding of who I want to be as I grew into, into my personhood. So in university, I found it quite a hard place to find community, to find myself reflected. And it wasn't until I, I joined a, a psychology group full of people who were interested in going into the field of psychology that I finally realized that I can obtain support, obtain a sense of security in people who really strove to do their best in psychology, whatever that meant to me at, the, at that moment. 
Um, and so being able to connect with people who are very driven, who knew exactly what they wanted to do, uh, offered me the mentorship that I needed to navigate the system and to really find myself in this work. Obviously speaking, with psychology, it's such a big field. There's so many things that one can do. So the experiences after that really solidified the type of mental health practitioner I wanted to be. One of those experiences being uh, volunteering at a crisis center. So this is where I picked up phone calls with people who are in distress, people who are on the verge of uh, ending their lives by suicide. And as we are thinking about what that work might entail and the stress that might be involved with it, one might run for the hills thinking about those things. But the fact that I got to do it in community, it was such a thriving group of people who supported one another, taught one another what it meant to, to do good work, and then also be there with open arms to debrief if anything were, were to happen. That really gave me an indication of how this work can be done. Individually, we can only go so far, but as a collective, we can hold one another and pass on the baton if needed. So I would say those are some of the, the more clarifying experiences for me in determining what sector of the field I wanted to go into and how I wanted to do it. Sounds like you were able to gain firsthand experience basically navigating the complexities of the issues that people came to you with. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you didn't feel alone yes. to how to deal with it. You felt the sense of camaraderie community that helps support you and helping others. And so it seemed like you really leaned into more of the clinical space and psychological mm -hmm. practice. Now, I think something that as part of your work, there is such a great emphasis on culture, sharing of space. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it's the language, the sharing of space, mm -hmm. as opposed to I'm delivering this treatment. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about just your clinical work, can you share with me how that idea of sharing space emerged for you? Yes. I love how you see me in the way that I need to be seen, Jack. Very few people are able to pick up the nuances, but I try my best to be consistent with that languaging. For me, it this work is not a hierarchical engagement or endeavor. This work is about co-creating, co-constructing what the intersubjective space looks like, right? I am only me because of who I'm with and vice versa. That we are in a space of determining the parts of ourselves that we would like to share and how we would like to be transformed as a result of the experience. Political work to me is bi-directional work. I would be doing myself and my clients a disservice if I were not, if I did not allow myself to be transformed, to grow, to be someone different as a result of a particular encounter. And so for me, that's what sharing space means. It's not clearly defined at the very beginning. The outcome might look very different as a result of us growing in parallel to one another. Mm, so how would you approach it if a client saying, hey, I'm struggling with anxiety? How would you, in using 
your stance. Address that in the case of treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So sharing space in the context of someone saying, listen, I'm grappling with uh, anxious distress. I'm grappling with matters that are overwhelming my capacity to cope. Sharing space means to uh, agree to come together to witness the pain and suffering. Agreeing to come together to learn what it takes to be with one another to explore how the anxious distress need to be contained. And part of that is exploring the purpose, the context, the reason that it exists in the first place. I do believe that we are all rational beings, meaning that we do things for a particular reason, whether it drives our self-esteem, it maintains our sense of identity, or to just feel safe against the backdrop of existential threat. Even if it doesn't seem rational in the moment, there is probably a purpose for it. And oftentimes those purposes might change. And so the original way of coping or adapting may not fit the circumstances. And that's why it's necessary to create that safe and trusting space so that there could be an exploration of the reasons for one might cope in a certain way to survive. And then hopefully through that safe and trusting alliance that people can explore different ways of being themselves um, to experiment what that might look like, and then hopefully be able to apply it in their daily lives on a regular basis and, and ultimately transform their experiences. Yeah. So this idea of experimenting in terms of the biracial identity and working with biracial clients. Do you have any tips or ideas of things that we really want to be cognizant of when we are working with biracial clients? Yeah, thanks for that question. And I think two things come to mind and and working within the here and now, Jack, just between you and I, the term bicultural identity is not new to me on a professional front, but it is certainly new to me on a personal front. I was telling you during our prep call that you're one of the first individuals who really inquired into that about me. And it allowed me to to think differently, to form a different relationship with that term itself. And so I think one of the first things when clinicians are working with somebody who straddles different cultures is to explore language, try on language to see if it fits. If it's not a complete no, and there's a part that says maybe, or I wonder, right, to allow that to just sink in, to metabolize and to not rush that process. I think it's really important to do this in relationship. As I had shared before I had met you, this had not come up for me on my own. I had not considered whether or not to try on this this term of of bicultural identity and whether or not it fit. So it required collaboration, it required conversation, it required somebody to say, does this fit? Does that fit? Have you considered these pieces? So that relationship is the vehicle in the exploration and always asking for consent, always going at the pace of 
that individual, not pushing too hard, obviously, and but still pushing enough so that there is that desire or exploration to to grow and work through the growing pains. So I would say it's the active engagement and experimentation with different parts of language and trying things on and seeing what comes out at the end is important, as opposed to my original plan, which was, uh, I told you earlier, put it in a box under the bed and then pull it out when I feel like I'm ready. (laughs) Um, But it's been close to four decades of that and I haven't pulled it out yet. (laughs) I think that push was important. Yeah. 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 Creating curiosity in one's life. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, in terms of thinking about your clinical work, what excites you the most? What excites me the most? I just recently learned this in terms of what excites me because as I was growing and being socialized to the field, I had learned that there were only one of three tracks I can take on. One is become a clinician, one of the most obvious. Another is maybe become a researcher slash professor. And then the last would be uh, an assessor, an evaluator, does psychological testing. So those were the three tracks that I had learned. And I didn't know that I could incorporate my identities as an intersectional being into this work. And it's over the years that I've come into my identity as a woman of color. And I say that with pride and borrowing from Loretta Ross's work on that being an organizing term rather than a biological destiny. I'm quoting exactly her words is that it's an indicator to people of where I stand in this world and what my politics are. And my politics lie in looking at systems or structures that oppress people. I come from a culture where I tend to internalize my struggles, meaning that if something is wrong in my life, my goal is to figure out what is wrong with me. And so over the years, I've developed a practice where I support people in exploring the external factors to their pain and suffering. And so what excites me about this work is, one, I can include more of my identities into this work in informing how I do this work and the nuances that I pick up in people. And two, is that I can take those identities and craft a career that is aligned with my values Uh, throughout this conversation. And as you have very intuitively picked up, I am a community oriented person. Community gives me identity. So in thinking about how I might apply my clinical practice, it isn't just working with individuals. It's working with also groups of people. If a client comes to me and says, this group of people give me identity, give me purpose, and I need them, I need to invite them into my healing so that other people can also benefit from my healing, then that to me is a very viable option in exploring in terms of what healing might look like. Like the work is exciting because you're really bringing in every aspect of your experience. Now, can you tell me more about your consultancy work? 
and how that blends into your current clinical practice? Yeah, really good question. Having gone into consulting work has lit something in me to want to continue on with that work and to fold it into my practice. When I was in Toronto, uh, full-time doing consultancy work in, in equity, diversity, inclusion, I played more of a consultant role versus a psychologist. I did borrow my training, uh, my educational background uh, in informing my work, especially when it comes to working with group dynamics and creating a a trauma-informed space. But now I'm ready to swing to the other side of putting on my psychologist hat and then applying the consultancy skills in that context. Uh, And so moving forward in my clinical work, I'd like to provide more spaces to train our emerging psychologists, particularly Asian American identifying psychologists in reclaiming their cultural identity and how they might incorporate that into their work. So from that perspective, I'm operating as a psychologist, as a mentor, as a supervisor, but also offering some some consultancy, some coaching that might be related to supporting someone in, in cultivating that identity. And so I'm also thinking about align with this message of experimenting with different identities. Mm-hmm. What are some of the nuances we should consider in working with BIPOC clients? Yeah one needs to look further into, I would say, is developmental piece in terms of professional development. Where are they in their journeys? Taking a look at the supports or or systems that are already in place or are not in place. So a lot of BIPOC professionals who I was supporting in finding C-suite or finding executive level positions within various organizations, one of the common factors is that there was a lack of of mentorship or sponsorship. Mentorship meaning uh, somebody who can support your growth on a personal or professional level, a sponsor or somebody who works within your organization who can help you navigate those systems and be your spokesperson when a promotion is due, for example. So the professional development piece can be explored. And I will never let go of my social justice lens, which is to also take a look at the the systems and structures that were not in place in supporting that person's growth or development. So if there's a lack of representation in leadership, it sends a signal that one's ethnic or cultural identity may be an area of shame or that one does not have the the cultural or professional capacity to achieve a certain level of of leadership position. So with all the things that I just said, it doesn't require a deep dive in exploring a person's psyche to be able to facilitate those conversations. And when we cross over into the psychotherapy realm, somebody might be struggling so severely that it's impacting their mental health, it's impacting their ability to strive for personal goals, their struggles, it can be now defined in a disordered way as how our profession might define it. When they're in that realm, 
then they might have less capacity or energy to draw from to explore the personal or professional growth pieces. And so with those folks, there might be a stronger recommendation to seek professional support to address that piece. And if I was the consultant in that space, I would not be uh, offering myself, but certainly might be able to provide some psychoed on how to navigate the mental health system and, and find uh, appropriate resources. So since we are focused on the topic of bicultural identities, mm-hmm. even when you were doing consultancy work, did you encounter working with any bicultural or biracial clients? And did you notice how that may have played out a little bit differently versus someone who is monoracial? Mm. Yes. Yeah. So I worked for a firm that had the term BIPOC in the, the title of the organization. And so when people see that, they tend to reach out to us to see if we would be working with their ethnocultural group. And that commonly comes up for folks who are bicultural. I found that there were some folks who would talk about their two identities. So for example, if part of their identity is identifying as BIPOC, but the other part is white identifying or with Western European roots, they tend to compartmentalize, (laughs) meaning that this half is the BIPOC half and then this half is the white identifying half. And sometimes there could be of that lack of, of integration or making sense of what that might mean. And for some bicultural folks, and I'm just reflecting on my own experience as well, is that lack of integration can keep us from growing into who we eventually could be. That lack of integration holds us back from exploring what that merging could mean and what it could mean if somebody could boldly and unapologetically say, I'm bicultural, and owning what that means and delivering a message on that, there's power, there's there's personal empowerment that, that comes from it. And when one is feeling empowered and competent, then one will strive for things that they would have never thought possible before. And then that unleashes creativity, thinking outside the box, uh, innovation, insight. So I guess when I work on a professional level, I support people in that integration. I find that I, I support them in finding that, that third space. But on an individual personal level, I struggle with coming to terms with what that might mean. And it isn't until, for example, when you and I are together that I'm, I give myself permission to really explore and and to and to play around with what that the idea looks like. And so I'm now trying to put myself in spaces where I could have those conversations to see what new might come up for me. Okay. Yeah. So let's experiment with something since this is in line with yes. <laughs> your message here. Yeah. So yes. so I'm going to ask this question slightly differently, but it is a question I ask everyone. And that is, in your career as a person of color, or in your career as a biracial woman, mm. what were some of the challenges that you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? Mm. Yes. I love how you always invite me to play. 
Um, I think it's an indicator of the sense of safety and trust that we've built in our working alliance together. So in terms of some of the, the challenges that came up as I navigated my career is finding my voice. <laughs> I know for a lot of us as BIPOC individuals, it's often a, a common struggle, and, but I'd like to bring my nuance into this. I come from a culture, especially on, on the Chinese side, where there, there's a deference to authority, holding teachers with reverence. I get told I'm a good girl if I'm obedient. <laughs> By obedient, meaning live in the footsteps of, of my parents. And so I carried that way of being throughout my formal schooling always following orders, always taking the teacher's lead. I rarely put up my hand. <laughs> In fact, I, I, I would ask myself, what did I even have anything of significance to offer if I put up my hand? Why would anyone want to hear my opinion? There's already an opinion out there. There's already the truth stated in this textbook. And this person put their name next to this idea. <laughs> so what more can I can I add to that? And so it's always felt quite elusive to create original thought, to develop my own thought leadership. And I remember this very light bulb moment in my early 20s, and I was at a seminar to open one's business. And one of the recommendations was to deliver workshops and presentations. I turned to the woman next to me who was um, significantly old, older than I was probably a few decades. And I said, so are they telling us to just like take ideas that I've learned and package it together and that's a workshop? But then what's the purpose of me? People can just read that book. <laughs> We can just tell people the books that I reference from and, and read it. I don't remember her giving me an answer, to be honest. And it wasn't until I was maybe doing my dissertation. <laughs> so that was my last year of my doctoral training that I finally realized that the thesis, the point of the thesis was to give my opinion on something. Right, given the data that I have that I have collected, what was my opinion on what was happening? And it was okay to not have to cite that opinion, meaning that somebody else out there didn't have to hold that opinion to legitimize mine. So from as soon as I found out that secret, that I gave started giving myself permission to give an opinion, give an informed opinion. Right. So based on the information I've collected, this is what I'm thinking. Um, that, and then be able to speak publicly about that opinion and to, to state it with emphasis and with confidence. And so when I gave myself permission to not have to echo other people's knowledge, that was when I came into myself. That was when I gave myself permission to say that I have something to say. Hmm. I like that experience and journey you took. And I love that you spoke about the Asian culture where there is this expectation that the authority, their word and their message is basically 
almost somewhat dogmatic. I mean, that's too strong of a word I'm using, but it's listen to your authority figures. And we are socialized in many ways to think or not think, just accept things, accept things as they are. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So what about the other aspect of yourself, the the Mexican side Mm -hmm. in terms of this biracial experience? Any challenges from that lens that you faced and overcame? Yeah, a huge one. And, you know, I can say that it's also the purpose of our conversation today. (laughs) Why you had invited me to, to come on to speak about this is the question of, am I allowed to claim this part of my identity? And, Uh, I've submitted a photo of myself to you that you can use as an image for this episode. And so audience members, listeners will be able to see me visually what I look like. And most, including myself, will say that I look like I have Asian, East Asian heritage. And so I've, I guess I've defined myself by phenotype, by physically what I look like. And I, as I look at myself in the mirror, I look like I belong in a particular racialized category. And so that has been my script, my narrative that I publicly share with people that I'm, I'm East Asian, particularly of Chinese descent, because it fits in with how I think other people are receiving me. And if they're comfortable, then I'm comfortable. <laughs> Going back to... Um, like you mentioned early on the first half of our conversation yeah yeah so i growing up i have i very rarely claimed the the mexican ancestry part of me in my mind i needed to have a certain percentage of genetics tna to define who i am and so that part of me, the the Mexican heritage, has often been left out of the narrative. However, when I do that, I essentially leave out my entire dad's side of the family uh, in any conversation. I've shared with you and I'd like to share with the audience that my dad's side, most of his siblings are still in Mexico, scattered throughout. So in Puebla, and in Oaxaca, and Chiapas, Tijuana. And my cousins, I have a lot of cousins who live in Mexico as well. When I go there to travel, I speak, I can, I don't speak Spanish. I only speak English and Cantonese. And so I speak, I speak uh, English to my cousins um, who then translate it to my aunts and uncles. So there's often a three-way, two-way translation to get a message across. But the nonverbals, their sense of warmth and openness towards me, their inclination to take me to their favorite restaurants, to make me their food, to show me their home. I can feel the love and the desire for inclusion into those spaces. So whenever I go visit, it it almost feels like a secret trip. <laughs> I go there and I be someone else because I, I feel the love, I feel the containment. And then when I leave, I then turn that off and I turn back on the Asian part of me because that's the culture that I was raised in predominantly. So to me, 
the biggest struggle in reclaiming that part of me is giving myself permission to speak on those pieces in public spaces. <laughs> this is a very public platform and and I'm I'm doing this as a means to show myself that I'm allowed to do this, right? I'm I'm now giving myself permission to do that and to see what it's like afterwards. Once it's out, once it's live, what what does it feel like to be received? And I've kept myself accountable by telling a few of my friends that I was doing this and and I invited them to to listen to it when it airs um, so I can get that feedback. Well, Dr. Lei, really, really thank you for sharing this because it is a great demonstration of vulnerability and leadership mm-hmm. that you yourself are taking the leap to show that you are trying to grow. You're also experimenting. And if we are trying to help our clients experiment with their identities, yet we're not willing to do so, it's a disservice. Because as you're saying, it's a shared space. And so we ourselves have to be willing to also experiment. So thank you for being courageous. Any final thoughts for our listeners? I'm uh, soaking in your words, allowing it to settle. My final thoughts are give yourself time and space to explore the new parts of yourself because it's very tender. It needs to be taken care of and it needs to be taken care of relationally, just like in this context. So move slowly, move at a pace that, that feels right for you. Dr. Lay, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jack. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We'd love to hear from you, so send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color and Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Sutton.